All right, so we're in Romans, obviously, Romans 1. I'm just going to read quickly to where we're at. We're only at 14, and I'll just briefly go over it. So Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Okay, so we've been going over how Paul desired to go to Rome. He couldn't go to Rome. Remember, he's writing to the Roman church from Corinth. He has never been to Rome yet, but the church in Rome was already established, and it wasn't established by an apostle, but it was established probably from the believers from the day of Pentecost that somehow moved over there and started a church, and they were doing really well. So Paul, during his missionary journeys, intended to travel to Rome all the time. He wanted to go. He says that he you know, had always wanted to go, and he would always pray for them without ceasing because um, he wanted to impart a spiritual gift. And so last week we went over some spiritual gifts that he could impart. Does anybody remember that, what those are? His gospel, his, a mystery that, yeah. that to be one body. One body, right? That's exactly right. So there's three aspects um, of the Gentiles who become believers, right? Three parts. First, they're fellow heirs, right? To share with Israel in the inheritance of the kingdom. They're fellow members of the body, the church. And then third, they're fellow partakers of the promise. So the promise is the covenants covenantal promise of spiritual blessings, not physical blessings, meaning the church does not take over Israel's blessings that will take place in the millennial kingdom. A land member of Abrahamic covenant is land, seed, worldwide blessing. So the church isn't going to take over the land aspect, um, but they do participate in the spiritual blessings of the new covenant. Um, so Paul is imparting, will, is, will, will be imparting to them the idea that there is a new body, that there's not Jews, there's not Gentiles, there's this church, right? That was the mystery that he, that was revealed to him, that Christ gave to him. Mystery meaning it just wasn't, it's not mysterious, nor not understandable, it just wasn't revealed in the Hebrew scriptures. So we went over that, that was in Ephesians 2 and 3, um, that he had his, he had another gospel, his gospel. Uh, that was complementary to the gospel, right? Gospel just meaning good news. Um, we know what the gospel is according to Corinthians, that Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ rose again according to the scriptures, right? That's basically 
the content of your faith to be saved is believing those three things. He died, he buried, and he rose again, and then all the aspects that go along with that. Um, so Paul, but Paul had a gospel or good news, and the good news was that there's a new body, and the new body is made up of Jews and Gentiles, right? A second gift that he could impart was understanding positional truth, right? Um, now that they could be in Christ, and being in Christ, like we said, is a technical term, being you're no longer in or under the wrath of God, you're now in Christ, right? Under the, the propitiation, you've been... Um, You've been forgiven, you've been declared justified, you've been declared, um, you will be sanctified and you will be glorified, but you are declared justified. Then Paul goes back and says, it's not just for me to impart to you, but I will be mutu mutually benefit as well um, because of your, encouraged by your own faith, right? Your faith will encourage yours, yours and mine. Um, then he just goes on and says, talking about how he couldn't quite get there. Um, and he was hindered. We'll learn later on that he was hindered because he had so much work to do, um, too much stuff to do that he couldn't stop what he was doing to go over there. But here, here he's writing to them, and he will, as we studied in Acts, he will eventually make it over to Rome, but it will be under bonds, right, under chains, which will eventually, um, he will eventually be able to live his life outside of that too. Okay, good. So let's look at um, his obligation. That should be where you're at. Where you see the three dotted lines on your notes. That's going to be where you're at. Um, so this is his true motivation. It's a missionary obligation, right? So if someone, I read 14 and 15, but if someone read it again, if you'd read 14, please. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, uh, both to the wise and Okay, so he's under obligation. He feels debted to the Greeks and the, or the Gentiles, right? Um, maybe even to the entire human race because Christ himself told him, go, your mission is the Gentile world. So he feels an, a, a sense of debt, a sense of obligation to go do, the, do that. So we see Greeks and barbarians, wise and the foolish. Um, that's how Paul differentiated sort of the cultured Gentiles from the, the not cultured ones, right? And the Greeks would be the wise ones and then the, the uncultured would be barbarians or the foolish. That's how he sort of differentiated them. And then verse 15, if you read that. All right, so he's, again, he's obligated to preach the gospel. The gospel was that was Christ dying, bearing, being resurrected, and also the new body, right? Um, let's, I'm going to read Galatians 1, 11 and 12, and it's going to answer that question. Why does Paul feel obligated to preach the gospel to the Gentiles? Um, actually, there's three, there's three passages, so we'll read them all together. Let's look at the first passage. It's Galatians 1. That's in your notes, right? Yes, Galatians 1, 11 and 12. So this is why he feels obligated to preach to the Gentiles. So I'm going to read uh, Galatians 1, 11, and 12. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Right, so a revelation himself. Jesus Christ came to Paul himself, 
So we know that he had more uh, theophanies than just the road to Damascus, that Christ revealed it to him himself, right? The second passage is Ephesians 3. We went over that last week, but let's, let's read that again. Ephesians 3, 1 through 7. And the context is why he feels obligated to preach to the, the Gentiles. he was made a minister to participate in sharing that message, right? That was now, wasn't revealed before, but now it is to the holy apostles and prophets by the Holy Spirit. So that's one of the reasons why he's obligated and felt a duty bound to uh, spread the gospel to the Gentiles. And then the third passage is 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. So this is a mag I mean think about it. it's a magnificent revelation that no other man had had before understanding had before so Paul is is feeling special in a sense you know he he is special in a sense that Christ chose him to spread this understanding this gospel um, and he had received greatness surpassing greatness of revelations so read uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, if you would. For to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, the thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that is, that I should, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, so these three passages teach us that he had received direct revelation from God, right? He, he emphasizes the uniqueness and the abundance of the revelation. And in fact, in order to uh, remain humble, God gave him this thorn in his side, right? Um, just to keep him from sort of being puffed up and becoming conceited, um, God gave him both a revelation, an abundant revelation, and a thorn in his side, right? To kind of balance things out. Um, but it also, that revelation motivated him to be in God's debt. Right? He, he really understood the, the power and the revealing and, and the mission that God had chosen him to carry out 
So he has this debt, this obligation to the whole world, essentially, to the Gentile world, both the, the learned ones and the unlearned ones, the cultured and the uncultured ones. Um, so he would preach, and Rome, being the center of the known world at that time, is his focus because from there it will go out, right? It will spread. He, he wants to continue going west, and west eventually getting to Spain even. Uh, and so Rome is a big part of that mission. Um, so a big part of understanding this aspect is that preaching requires proclaiming the gospel, right? No one's going to be saved by living like a believer or watching a believer live, right? Or, or learning from a believer the way they live. They have to know the gospel. They have to know the truth. They have to understand what that is. Um, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, right? By the word of God. And he'll go over that moreover in, in chapter 10. So the message of the gospel has to be proclaimed and understood for salvation, not looked at other uh, believers are not going, like we said before, not just going to church regularly, not even just reading the Bible or praying. You have to understand the gospel message and have faith that it is for you and that Christ is who he said he was and that him, him alone are you saved by that grace, right? Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians, where he's at right now in Corinth, he says, uh, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So the idea is that this simple message, right, this simple gospel is the folly of the world because it's so simple. And the learned and the wisdom and all the things that are out there in, in, in the Gentile world or the Greek world, they did not know God through wisdom. And we're going to actually see how he condemns them. Paul will condemn them because they, they transform, think they worship the creation rather than the creator, right? That they're not, there is no wisdom in them. Yet it pleased God through someone like Paul who has this thorn on the side to preach to those who would be saved. Yeah? Um, okay, so now, are we good? Any thoughts or questions, comments? Good. All right, so here we are to the theme. These two verses are the main theme of Romans, the book of Romans. It's the gospel that saves, right? So he's going to describe the gospel. Someone read verse 16, if you would. Romans 1, 16. Okay, so we see the first word, for, I am not, right? So that for links the previous verse um, and that he wanted to preach the good news of Christ to those who are in Rome. So he's putting that together, right? That being there, um, he's con connecting verse 15 to verse 16. Um, he was not ashamed of the gospel, right? Because he was going to preach it because of the obligation that God had given him. He's not ashamed of this gospel. Even though the gospel message is what got him persecutions and assassination attempts and, and, you know, probably ridicule and scorn and all these things, he's not ashamed of the gospel because he received it from God alone, and it is the salvation of every man, right? It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we can't forget that, right? The Jew first, even though the Jews right now are under a blindness, right, so to speak, and when there's not many Jews coming to the Lord, they still do come to the Lord. And it is actually our obligation to bring the gospel to Jews first and then to the Greek. And we, as we studied Acts, we see that Paul did that everywhere he went. He would always go to the synagogue first and always preaching his gospel, the gospel of uh, bringing together the new body, Jews and Gentiles, into one under Christ, right? Um, and so that's what we have to remember, too, that it is to the Jew first. Um, okay, so, well, just let me say what the gospel, the content of the gospel is. Here, Paul is saying that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. The content of the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, like we said. It says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received, that Messiah died for our sins according to scriptures, that he was buried, and that he has been raised on the third day according to scriptures. So that's the content of the gospel of what you must believe, right? Believe that those things, that he's resurrected. He died, he buried, and he rose again according to what scriptures had said it would be. So when he says in verse 16 of Romans 1 that I'm not ashamed of this content, that gospel, because this gospel, understanding that content, is the power of God to save you, right? That's how you will be saved to everyone that would believe. Um, it's the substitutionary death. It's the burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the simple message, right? That's all we have to do to, to be saved is believe that. No, it doesn't have to be, you know, all the other things we talk about, okay? <laughs> um, Mark 8.38 says that if you are ashamed, right? Paul, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this message. It, didn't, it meant that he really didn't believe, right? Mark 8.38, Jesus says this. He says, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man also shall be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So in Mark 8, Christ is saying, whoever is ashamed of this gospel, right, the kingdom of, hand, kingdom of God is at hand, um, the Son of Man also will be ashamed of him. So Paul had that in the forefront of his mind. He's not ashamed of the gospel. Um, I'm trying to not put it, say all these verses, kind of too many verses to, to bolster that point. Um, so Paul had no need to be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God, right, to salvation. It's, the, it's divine power by which God saves people. The, the gospel itself has intrinsic power. It's content. Believing in those things is the power of God in you, right? It changes you. That's where you become justified immediately when you believe those things. Um, it's, it's filled with power, and it has intrinsic power. That message that God gave Paul, that Paul spread to the world. Um, again, 1 Corinthians 1 says, But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so that's, that's the crux of the gospel, is that he's preaching Christ crucified, right? A stumbling block to them. It's folly to the wise of the world, 
and it's stronger than the strong, the strength of the world, and it's stronger than the weakness of, its weakness is stronger than anything that the world has to offer as well. So the power of the, of the gospel will result in salvation, right? Nothing else, nothing else will result in salvation. It's, so the theme here is that, that the book of Romans is the gospel. So he's, he's gonna unpack verse 16 and 17 of all that understanding in the whole 16 chapters, right? The first chapters one through eight, they're gonna define, we're going to go through the elements of that salvation, right? You're gonna be justified, right? Which is the past element if you're a believer. Then you're gonna be sanctified, which is the present element of that salvation. And then, then you'll have glorification, which is the future element of that, that salvation. So understanding this simple message has the intrinsic power to justify you, to sanctify you, and to, be, to glorify you, right? That's, that's the whole sort of message that Paul is saying in the book of Romans. Um, once you're saved, you're on the path, right? Nothing can snatch you out, right? Nothing can snatch you out. Not even yourself, right? You're, you're in the Father's hands, you're in the Holy Spirit's hands, you're in the Son's hands. Nothing can snatch you out once you have been justified. Um, and so again, we, ha we have to understand what salvation or what justification occurs. It doesn't occur by just going to church or saying uh, a prayer or a, a repeating a, a prayer or you know, walking an aisle or raising your hand. It's actually believing those things. All those things can be can be symbolic of that understanding that you have, raising your hand or walking the aisle, but the actual element that you have to understand is that faith in those three things. Not go, like I said, not going to church, not doing all those things, but that faith is what has the intrinsic power to save you, and once you're saved, it starts that path forward. Um, yeah? And we're, we're guaranteed that process because who, who does it? God. Do we do any part of it? We do no part of it, right? That's, that's the good news. <laughs> the good news is we can't mess it up. We can hinder and we can quench the, whole, uh, quench the Holy Spirit, but the, the process is still happening, right? And it, it, it might bite your conscience because you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to be working itself out in you, but all that process is done by him and you can't stop it you can't you can like i said you can slow it down and you can quench it and you can do these things but the process of salvation past present and future is all on him and he is faithful right he is faithful and so that faithfulness of god is how we rest knowing that no matter what we do or don't do we are being sanctified right in fact, Paul in Thessalonians says, this is God's will for your life, right? God's will for your life is sanctification. And then it, it lists a few things, abstain from sexual morality, be at peace with people. But that's God's will. If you want to know God's will for your life, it is that, the sanctification process. No matter where you're at, you might be called to China or a, a, a hut that you answer AT&T calls or whatever. You know, you might be there, but... The whole purpose of you being there is the sanctification process, and God chooses your sanctification process. Might be different than somebody else's sanctification process, right? But that's what it is. That's God's will for your life. Okay. Good? Okay. Amen, right. Okay, so then verse 17 is a quotation of Habakkuk. Habakkuk? I 
Habakkuk? I don't know. <laughs> it's a hard word to say. Uh, 2.4b states, but the righteous shall live by his faith, right? So Habakkuk is an Old Testament scripture, right? And what does it say? The righteous shall live by faith. In fact, this, this verse is one that Martin Luther used against his thesis against the Roman Catholic because they had all these rules and all these things. And he says, Habakkuk, uh, and it says, the righteous shall live by faith, right? So he's not, remember, and remember when we were studying Acts, when he went before Festus and Agrippa, that he said, I'm not teaching anything new here. This is all in their scripture. This is all in the prophets and, the Mo and Moses. They just don't know it, right? He, 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 it was his whole thing. They were accusing him of creating this new sect under Judaism and that he should be punished. And he's saying, no, I, I'm just telling you what's in your scripture, what's in the scripture that I was raised with too. Here it is. The righteous shall live by faith is one of those passages, right? So like we said, the principal foundation of salvation has always been faith, right? And that's true from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve all the way forward. It is always by faith. Salvation has always been by faith and will always be by faith. Uh, doesn't matter which stewardship or dispensation it is in. It's always by grace, our faith in him having grace to us and mercy to us. Okay, so. 600 BC. 600 BC. We just were looking at that book as we went in, and um, you know, I, I just think it's great that he knows the scriptures from 600 years prior to his own life, and here we are on years later still looking at. Yeah, right. Was written back then, and it's still true. It's still true. It's un it's immutable, unchangeable, right? Okay, so D, are we good? D, summary of Paul's gospel message. So far, let's, so let's just summarize. So far, what do we know about the gospel from Romans? The gospel comes from God. It is God's power. It is for salvation. So salvation including justification, sanctification, glorify, glorification. Who is it for? Everyone, right? Everyone. Who, who does salvation come to? Or who, who receives salvation? Those who believe. Those who believe, right? Those who believe. The gospel reveals what about God? Righteousness, Righteousness right? Um, and it's, it's efficacious, or its efficacy is that it brings righteousness to those who believe. So it reveals God's righteousness, and it also allows you to be righteous, right? It will, it will bring uh, efficiency or efficaciousness to you to be righteous as well. The gospel to who first? The Jews, then to the Gentiles. And how are we to live knowing this in the sense of what, what do we live by in the salvation sense, in, in justification, sanctification, and glorification? What, what runs our life? Faith. faith, right? That's it. Faith. Faith, that's how we must continually live by faith that God is working these things out in you, right? Uh, so then, regarding the righteousness of God, um, he makes some more additional points, Paul. And so righteousness proceeds from God. It's approved by God. It will succeed with God because it demands his justice. Right? God is just, and he just doesn't overlook the sin. 
It's been paid for. It's been propitiated, right? He imputes righteousness to you, not because you're righteous, but because of what Christ did for you and your faith in him, right? So faith or righteousness, God owns. God defines righteousness. God is righteous, and God attributes you to be righteous, right? It's his property. Who's the author and finisher of our faith? God, right? So it must be approved by him, right? He's the one who's authoring it. He's the one who's finishing it in you. Therefore, it is sufficient for you, right? The faith is sufficient. His faith is sufficient for you to be righteous, to be glorified, to be sanctified, to receive all the spiritual blessings. Our whole life depends upon just trusting that God will do those things in you. That's it. Right? It really boils down to those things. That's the message that Paul is preaching to the Romans and, their, and by extension to us. Um, so that's what the first eight chapters are going to be like. It's going to be Paul revealing what righteousness is. Right, uh, And it's going to cover, we're going to go more in depth in justification, sanctification, and glorification. That's the first eight chapters. So 16 and 17, Romans 1 is our theme, and that's how we're going to go through the next. And then... 9 through 11 will be a, a break because he has to address the issue of Israel, right? So we don't think that we have replaced Israel. Paul will uh, take a little break and, just, and, and remember he has to, he has to uh, ensure that people will believe in the promises of God because God promised Israel covenantal things and so he says, well, what's up with Israel? What happens if now that they reject the Messiah, are they gone? Are they lost? Are they heaven? He says, far be it from the truth, right? They still have a plan. So he has to address the fact that God promised these things to Israel and that in order for us to believe that God will bless us spiritually, we have to address that with Israel. And then uh, chapters 12 through 16 will be, now that you know all these things, basically, what do you do with that, right? And 12.1 says, you know, therefore, by the mercies of God, knowing all the things that God has given you, what do you do? You present your body a living and holy sacrifice, right? That's because you have all these things, now you do these things, yeah? Okay, so now we jump right away into justification. Um, like I said, we're going to kind of break each, each of these um, aspects down. So justified means to be declared uh, righteous in a legal, judicial sense, right? It doesn't mean that the actual believer who has been justified is righteous. Rather, it means that God declares him as righteous. Do we see the difference, right? God now views that person or declares him to be righteous, even though he's not righteous. He's righteous by imputation, right? Not by... Um, exercise or practicing right living or anything like that, it's that God imputes righteousness to him, even though he's undeserving of it, right? Um, <clears throat> so God is announcing that this sinner um, is righteous. It doesn't concern the, the, the change occurring in the sinner. It's that God is announcing him to be righteous, um, it doesn't make anybody holy. It's not going to make you instantly holy, right? That's the sanctification process, right? The sanctification process is maturing and growing. But justification is a legal pronouncement on you that you are declared justified, you are declared righteous. Um, basically, 
by being righteous, declared righteous, you now can be in the presence of God, right? You're no longer guilty before him, right? You don't have that sentence of, of punishment on you because he declared you to be righteous. Who does it? Only God can do that, right? You don't, we don't have the power or the authority to do it to ourselves or to anybody else. So it's a godly act, an act that he does to each individual um, that believes um, that that will result in that salvation, that justification. So in order to understand that, right, or appreciate that, that justification process that God gives, Paul is going to have to express why you need to be justified, basically, right? Every human being is a sinner. We have to understand that we are in the position of being under the wrath of God, not in Christ, but that being under the wrath of God, that we are deserving it. So he's going to can basically ex express how God has condemned the world, right, because of their sin and the need for righteousness, right? So if you, will you have, to, will you have if you don't re recognize that you're a sinner, and that you need a savior, are you gonna believe and trust the gospel to, for anything, right? You must first understand your position, that you are condemned, that God does have wrath coming to you, and it's justifiable wrath. So you have to understand that your sinfulness is not compared to one another. You know, we live in a culture that says, I'm generally a good person. I do nice things, I do good things, God's gonna forgive me. No, if we compare ourselves to some, our, our neighbors, we might feel like we're good, but that's self-righteousness, right? We have to understand God's righteousness and then put ourselves where we decide, you know, we'll, we're going to figure out that God's righteousness is so far removed from our thought of righteousness. So we have to understand what our sin is. Uh, so Paul's going to address the issue of just, justification, but he first has to uh, address the issue of sin. Um, so there's the guilt of the Gentiles, right, basically. So Paul will next go on the next couple of verses. He's going to show regardless of your position in human society or your race or your religious qualities, right, we're all guilty of sin. Um, therefore, we're all under God's condemnation. Um, there's a universal need for righteousness um, among all people because all have sinned and fall short has fallen short of the glory of God or his standard of righteousness, right? So he's going he's gonna to deliberately discuss the Gentile world and then he's going to talk about the Jewish world. So verse uh, chapter 1, 18 through 2, 16 is going to be about the Gentile world being condemned under God and then two, chapter 2 to 3 is going to be the Jewish world being under condemnation. So it's universal of all mankind regardless of you're a king or you're a peasant. Everybody in between is... is, is uh, a sinner. Okay, so let's, uh, so first he's going to talk about the guilt of the Gentiles. Um, before, before Paul's gospel, there was split into two people, right? It was just the Jews and the Gentiles. That's it. Now Paul brings the good news that there's another body, um, the Jews simply spoke of Jews and Greeks, right? Or Jews and Greek, uh, Gentiles. Um, and we talked about how they were barbarians. And we talked about how they're the learned ones or the, uh, the uncultured ones. Paul is going to say none of these distinctions matter. 
none of them matter, right? There's no matter if it's a Jew or you're a Gentile, you're a learned Greek or an unlearned Greek, cultured one or not cultured. All Jews, all Gentiles are under his condemnation. Okay, so let's read verse 18. It's the, the, the revelation of knowledge, right? Didn't we read 17? What's 17? Oh, we, yeah, we talked about how to cook 2-4, oh. um, which, right, we didn't read some. Go ahead, read 17. Read 17 and 18. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness Okay, so the pagan Gentile world, right, they suppress the truth, um, but they have knowledge. They have a revelation of knowledge, right, in and through creation. So again, verse 18, 4 connects this verse with verse 17. It's the righteousness of God is revealed because his, his wrath has been revealed. Um, God has been revealed. How... We, we know, how has God revealed himself in a general way? In creation. in creation, right? When you look up and you see the stars and you see the moon, you know there's something powerful, something bigger than you, something that has created those things, right? right. So God is revealed right there. God is revealed in the fact that there are stars, that there are is the moon, that there is the sun, that there are these things here, all the all the biological processes, all the, the laws of thermodynamics are evidence that there is a God, right? And it has divine power because it's significantly more powerful than you or any one of us together. Um, and so his righteousness is revealed. Because his righteousness is revealed, his wrath is revealed, right? There, that's what Paul's going to start connecting these things is that the wrath of God, in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hinder the truth in unrighteousness, right? So God shows his dis will show his displeasure with ungodliness and sin. So Paul is here is going to express that you can, you're going to be without excuse because you can look up and see that there is a God, right? Um, okay, so... Humanity, however, as Paul will say, tends to live like there is no God, right? You can look like this, basically, you know, and pretend like there's no stars and no sun and no moon and no, no gravity and all these things that make the world go round. Um, humanity generally lives as if there is no God, right? That's that type of ungodliness that the wrath of God will be revealed to, right? Ignoring that fact is what Paul is going to claim is, is what makes you unrighteous and makes you under his wrath. Um, okay, we probably better close there because there's a lot, a lot of deep stuff right here. <laughs> but that's, that's the beginning of Paul's argument is that they are without excuse because he is there in the heavens and he has revealed the knowledge of him. They don't know who he is. They don't know that he has a personality. They don't know what it is because that comes from special revelation. But 
God has revealed himself to all men, and it is in the stars, and it is in the created order of things. If we, if, you know, it's pretty obvious, if we were to believe in Darwinian evolution, where things just happen by random chance, we would have no laws, right? No laws of gravity, no hydrological cycle that we could actually create anything, a computer, a table, anything that we have is all dependent upon elemental laws, right? And they have to work consistently in that way. So the, the sheer fact that there are universal laws that make life possible is evidence of a divine being putting those out, putting it out there, right? Creating those things. So that's what he's saying already that God re reveals himself through his creation that he exists. And because man does not respond positively to that, they're under wrath, right? They're under wrath. It is really just that. It's, if you open your eyes, you will see that God's creation is evidence of him, and all you have to do is respond positively to it, and he'll give more light and give more understanding, right? And that's what we're, we're going to go through. So, All right. It's, it's going to get a little, little heady, but that's okay. <laughs> I have a note on verse 18 making the distinction between ungodliness and unrighteousness and then that ungodliness is uh, people that don't know about God and they'll expand on that in verses 19 to 27 that's the creation stuff and, and unrighteousness people who do know the ordinances of God but suppress the truth and turn away from God so that's like a different thing than not knowing it you know? yeah yeah there's there's a lot be good okay i'll pray father god we bow our hearts lord and we're thankful we're thankful that you have read life into us lord that you reach down in the depths of our death and you brought us to life lord and that you revealed truth and you revealed the, the gospel to us, Lord, that we would have faith to believe it. You are the author and you are the finisher of our faith, of our personal faith. And Lord, we're just thankful that you are faithful to carry it out. Lord, we pray that we would get out of the way. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't quench the Holy Spirit and that we would look forward to it moment by moment to being more like you and less like our pagan ideas and thoughts and, 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 and training Lord, but that we would be trained in you and understand you and understand the world as it really is, not a figment of our own doing. Lord, we pray for the worship service, that it would be pleasing to you as we worship you corporately. And we're thankful and we're grateful. And we look forward to this week that you would use us in what we say and what we do and what we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.